When I say modern violence, I'm interested in a broad spectrum of phenomena. I'm interested in structural violence, in kind of epistemic affront, and outright physical violence. A decade ago, as Matthew mentioned, I conducted fieldwork in Gujarat among Muslim peace activists in the aftermath of 2002. Um, what violence meant seemed quite apparent back then yeah, and quite obvious. Um, since then, I moved on to Lucknow. I worked on religious innovation, on Gundaraj politics, um, on masculinity, on longing and belonging, and violence kind of moved into the background um, of what I'm doing. So at times it still takes center stage when I talk to the neighbor who beats his wife or when I talk to the cleric who justifies abject destitution um, or when I read the news indeed. But more often than not, it's now kind of somewhere in the background. It's the willful ignorance towards others. It's the, the, high, you know, the slum encroaching on the high-rise building and vice versa. It's people whose voice hardens during an interview who draw boundaries just a little bit firmer than necessary. Um, it's when they talk about solace and grace uh, with a seal that doesn't quite fit what they're saying. Now, whenever I, dis I discuss this broad range of phenomena with, with people in Lucknow, one term that comes up again and again is tension, as the English word vernacularized into Hindi or other Indian languages. Um, and for many of the people I work with, this tension is an kind of permanent existential reality. Um, and as an anthropologist, we should resonate with the people we study, so tension also become a, a fairly permanent reality of my fieldwork. So tension is something that I want to make sense of today. So what irks me about violence and what I want to understand better is not the instrumental side. I'm not a political scientist anymore. I'm not a criminologist who wants to explain why violence happens. I'm also not primarily interested in what the effects of violence are on victims or survivors um, and, and on, in their suffering. But what I want to understand is the rigidity, the harshness that underlies the lack of empathy that underpins all of violence, be it epistemic or structural or physical. Because to me, this is what tension conveys. It's the violent force behind and within violence of all kinds, be it structural, epistemic or physical. And I want to make sense of this underlying tension um, in a theoretically productive way, I hope. So in a nutshell, what I want to suggest is that we should understand tension as the outcome of an overzealous pursuit of moral and categorical clarity, which alienates us from the ambiguity of lived experience. And I'm reading this again, because probably I have to read it three times to make sense of it myself. So what I want to suggest is that tension is the outcome of an overdose of clarity. Yeah. which alienates us from the ambiguity of our lived experience. At some point, this alienation becomes so gross and the aspiration for clarity is so untenable that tension overstretches, breaks down into ambivalence and then fuels violence. Now, the intuition behind this kind of reasoning is not particularly new. Um, others have said before that modernity alienates, that ambivalence and frustration fuel violence. And I specifically take a lead from Sigmund Baumann's book on modernity and ambivalence and Thomas Bauer's book on um, ambiguity tolerance, and I'll talk about them in, in greater detail in a minute. Deviating from them, however, I propose a theoretical vocabulary that distinguishes more clearly between ambivalence and ambiguity, and I'll return to this kind of scheme here in a bit. 
um, building on my ethnography on religion and aggression in northern India. And what my perspective adds, I hope, is a clearer understanding that the sense of confusion, of being torn between contrasting poles, conflicting demands, feeling irritated and full of tension, does not sufficiently explain violence. What makes confusion problematic is rather precisely the modern urge to make it problematic, is the attempt to crowd out all confusion by striving for resolute moral and ontological clarity. So the point I'm trying to make, and that goes against a lot of literature which sees confusion as a problem, especially confused young men as a problem, which are torn between modernity and tradition and, and so on and so forth, um, that confusion really is the normal state of our existence. And clarification entails a process of alienation, which up to a point makes sense, and beyond that breaks down and fuels violence and becomes the root of all problems. Now I'll first introduce my conceptual vocabulary to you, and I, I appreciate that this is quite a harsh strategy to set up this talk. Um, the story will come later. Um, I'm an anthropologist after all. But so first tell you how I think about ambivalence, ambiguity, alienation um, in conversation with Sigmund Bauman and Thomas Bauer, and then illustrate what I say with an ethnographic vignette from my fieldwork. Um, while I do this, please think about the two main benchmarks for any good theory. One, does it make better sense? Yeah. Does it is it useful in a pragmatic way to make sense of the world that we all share and live in? Um, and the other, does it resonate with the way people themselves make sense of their world? Yeah. Is there a resonance with emic terms? And the resonance that I want to highlight is with this notion of tension. Um, so does it resonate with your experience, with the experience of the people you work with in South Asia or elsewhere? And I hope that I can demonstrate both, that the theory that I propose helps to make better sense, to see more clearly, no pun intended, and that it does resonate with tension. Let me begin by summarizing the contribution of Sigmund Bauman in this book, Modernity and Ambivalence, written almost three decades ago. Modernity, argues Bauman, promised to bring the kind of clarity and transparency to human life that only reason can offer. The more we understood the world around us, the more we ourselves became the mystery and the kind of the way modernity promised to solve that is the way it promised to solve everything by clarifying it, clarifying ourselves. So Freud kind of followed on, on Descartes here. But as Baumann shows, this has not happened and today we no more believe that it ever will. We are ever more acutely aware of the irredeemable contingency of our existence of the irreparable ambivalence of all choices, identities, and life projects, and quote Baumann. Now, why was the promise of modernity not kept? Why have we not managed to tackle ourselves to overcome the ambivalence of our existence and achieve final clarity? Baumann argues in this book that we have not achieved this task because it's essentially unachievable. And the harder we try to clarify ourselves and our existence, the more violence we produce, creating exactly the abyss that we want to root out. Quote, our postmodern age, he then suggests, is therefore the time when the self-defeating nature of the project of modernity has come into full view. Postmodernity is a time of reconciliation with ambivalence and the time of learning how to live in an incurably ambivalent world. 
Now, I'm less optimistic that postmodernity is indeed a time of learning, um, or if you like, I'm less optimistic that modernity is overcome quite yet. But I think this analysis of Sigmund Baumann is, is quite uh, perceptive of the relationship between ambivalence and clarity, namely in that he says that ambivalence is the incurable reality of our experience, and the attempt to cure it by clarifying it and by insisting on clarity necessarily gets frustrated and ultimately fuels violence. And I think that's the empirical observation that he makes that resonates very much with my ethnography, and I hope to um, kind of illustrate this later on. But the question is, beyond this empirical statement of his, can the conceptual vocabulary that he unfolds about ambivalence travel? Can it help to make sense of violence elsewhere at other times of different kinds, etc.? Now, more recently, Thomas Bauer in this book, which unfortunately hasn't been translated into English yet, but the Kultur der Ambiguität, the culture of ambiguity, attempts precisely that. Um, unfortunately, in the process, he also replaces Baumann's term ambivalence with his own ambiguity, and I'll address this confusion in a bit because I think they're quite different things and it's quite useful to keep them separate. Now, what was Bauer up to? He is a historian, he studies Islam's golden age, as he calls it, and his argument is that any culture or epoch in, in our world can be characterized by the extent of tolerance for ambiguity, by which he very much means the same that Sigmund Baumann means with ambivalence. So it's not just European modernity or postmodernity that can be characterized that way. Thinking about how tolerant is a certain culture of ambiguity is a useful way to make sense of the world at large. That's Thomas Bauer's take. To him, ambiguity is a cultural achievement. It's a cultivated form of passionate indifference that is largely lost to us, but that is still to be found elsewhere and at other times. Ambivalence, in contrast, Baumann's original term, does not designate a cultural achievement, but essentially a confused mindset, namely, and I quote Bauer, the simultaneous presence of contradicting feelings, wishes, and thoughts. Ambivalence is a state between hatred and love, between proximity and distance, between wanting and lacking, which often remains invisible to those afflicted by it. It's much harder to interpret and resolve. The unease with one's own person can then trigger unease with ambiguous phenomena in the world, and in that sense, ambivalence can become a source for intolerance towards ambiguity and ultimately for violence. Now, at first glance, this seems quite plausible. It certainly seemed plausible to me when I worked in Gujarat um, and wrote this in my book on uh, Muslim peace activists in the aftermath of 2002. Um, the key theme there was how some of those activists rediscovered the sense for the ambiguity of lived experience to overcome the shattering ambivalence of violence and of victimhood and victimization. And I wrote this very much against um, a position that says the ambivalence of religion vis-a-vis -vis violence can be resolved by talking about the terrorists on one side and the peaceful people on the other side. And I said, no, the ambivalence of religion vis-a-vis -vis violence afflicts each one of them individually and, and personally. And that's a tension in the Hindi sense of the word um, that can be resolved partly by rediscovering a sense of ambiguity. But I lately started to doubt this take on ambivalence and ambiguity, and partly because I think it's, it's very specific to a specific post-conflict context. So as I moved on to Lucknow, I became wary whether this really makes sense. 
Now, before I, as I said, tell you the, the ethnography behind this, um, let me explicate how I use the terms ambivalence and ambiguity now and for this talk, and how I think they relate to alienation. And that brings you to this thing. Can we switch this off? So to me, ambivalence goes back to, well, not to me, but ambivalence goes back to the Latin term ambivalence. So it's a double meaning, or rather, more precisely, a double valuation. More stronger than Bauer, I see it as a tension or contradiction between two clear but opposed poles. So Bauer is right to say that ambivalence means the simultaneous presence of contradicting feelings, wishes, and thoughts. But ambivalence is not a state between hatred and love, between proximity and distance, between wanting and lacking. It is both hatred and love, proximity and distance, wanting and lacking. The phenomena, I think, that Bauer talks about of in-betweenness are better understood as instances of ambiguity. From the Latin verb ambigere, to sway, to fluctuate, to dither. Ambiguity is the in-between state, neither clearly on one pole nor on the other. The German language might help to illustrate that difference further. German translates ambivalence as zweideutigkeit, double meaning, and ambiguity as uneindeutigkeit, a non-single meaning. Now, zweideutigkeit is a deutigkeit, is a denotation, though in the multiple. So it stands in a row, and that's what I try to say here, with clarity, with eindeutigkeit, one single meaning, and multivalence, multiple meanings. Uneindeutigkeit, in contrast, does not reject simply the singularity of eindeutigkeit, of single meaning. It also rejects the clarity in it. So the difference between ambivalence and clarity and multivalence is a gradual one. Yeah? All of these are clear. This is clear in one way. Ambivalent phenomena are clear in two ways. These are clear in multiple ways. Ambiguous phenomena are not clear at all. So ambiguous phenomena are those that cannot be clearly understood or evaluated, phenomena for which we lack fitting categories or fitting evaluative criteria. Ambiguity is a neither nor. It's neither one pole nor the other. Ambivalence is an either or. Now this may seem like a fancy word swap, kind, kind of playing with words for the sake of it. Um, why does it matter? Why do I think it matters? And I think it matters because in its lack of clarity, ambiguity resembles human experience, which as experience is equally non-verbal, non-meaningful, unclear. I don't want to suggest that experience is untainted by culture or, or meaning. And to the contrary, of course, language pre-structures our experience. But as we live our life, we live it primarily um, without attaching meaning to it. Yeah. Um, as linguistically and culturally pre-structured as it may be, on a phenomenological level, we do not attribute meaning or moral valuation. Clarification only comes to experience as an afterthought. When additional layers of meaning, ontological or moral meaning, are attributed and heaped upon it. Modernity is a catalyst for this process of clarifying everything, of making everything meaningful. Um, 
as experience gets commodified, worn out in ironic postmodern multivalence, that's Sigmund Bauman, or reduced to kind of violent pre-modern univalence, that's Thomas Bauer. All of which are hollow, alienated from experience and hence violent. Which brings me back to Thomas Bauer, namely this idea that ambiguity intolerance roots in an experience of ambivalence. And I propose to turn this on its head. So I think that the violence, like the one which happened in Gujarat, in my case, or in colonialism in Bauer's case, or in modernity in Sigmund Bauman's case, can indeed lead to a situation in which we can only manage to grasp the sheer brutality of life in ambivalent ways. And if such violently enforced ambivalence triggers stronger ambiguity intolerance, this does not, however, just signal a yearning for clarity, for making sense of the violence. It also, and I think primarily, shows an alienation from experience per se. Because in a post-conflict setting, we cannot stand the ambiguity of experience because it's too brutal. So we alienate ourselves from this experience, or if you prefer to have less agency in there, we are being alienated from the experience. That's why we try to come up with categories to make sense of violence, with clear words to condemn it. Often these attempts fail, and the resulting moral and categorical ambivalence engenders further violence. I appreciate that this might seem quite counterintuitive. How could striving for clarity be a bad thing? Isn't this what our lives is all, are all about, what certainly our scholarly lives should be all about? And indeed, since the onset of Western Enlightenment and modernity, um, it became almost impossible to understand agency without clarity. It certainly became impossible to see any good in agency without clarity. But I wonder whether agency without clarity, without evaluation, is not in actual fact the normal case, and clarity the exception, given how unconscious and self-evident we tend to live our lives. So seen through the prism of my vocabulary here, the fact that ambivalence turns violent, that it tears us apart, primarily shows that ambiguity becomes a problem. Because ambiguity as ambiguity, as neither nor, as undefined, unjudged, cannot be a problem. Right? It's the normal state of our existence. It becomes a problem when we try to clarify it. And if that fails, then we come get into ambivalence, multivalence, etc. This process of clarification, I would argue, is always an alienation from lived experience. That is necessary, inevitable, perhaps even uh, worthwhile, but if driven too far, and that primarily means if we, clarify, if we try to clarify without acknowledging that our experience is primarily ambiguous and unclear, um, then tension overstretches. Yeah? Alienation goes too far, and that leads to violence. That's where the violence comes from. And that's, I think, where this vocabulary turns theoretically productive, because a great deal of literature argues that tension, everyday aggression, latent and at times manifest violence, is the outcome of confusion, as I said earlier. Not just in northern India, across the globe, it's usually young men who are said to be confused. They're torn between then and now, between tradition and modernity, between competing demands, essentially relegated to an insecure space and state of mind, which is then said to fuel male violence. And confusion and insecurity is certainly the experience that gets expressed when people in Lucknow talk about tension, many of them young men to me. 
the core of confusion, they are told then, or the cure of confusion, sorry, they are told, is clarity, namely moral clarity. Yeah. I think in, in Sneha's article and with Nandini on tension, they quote Narendra Modi, who says, if you feel tension in your life, what you have to do is to have a clear moral compass. And that's not just Modi, that's a general trend to say the problem, to solve the problem of tension, we need clarity. And I think that's precisely the, the other way around. Because given what I present here, I think the core of the issue really is confusion. Confusion is quite normal. It's a normal state of our life. What engenders violence is rather the tendency to run away from confusion, to attempt to clarify it beyond recognition, because this tendency implies an alienation from lived experience. As I said, this may be necessary, even inevitable, but I think we should remember that this process of making sense and the process of judging implies an alienation from the actual experience. Um, and that this alienation, the, the red arrow here, has the potential to engender violence. Now, after this fairly abstract kind of play of words, um, let me use the remaining 20 minutes or so that I have to illustrate what I said by introducing you to a dear friend from Lucknow, Ayaz Sheikh. Hopefully, a little ethnography will clarify what I try to say, because as I said, clarification up to a point is necessary. Um, demonstrate how this vocabulary can be useful, can help to make sense, and at the same time resonate with how people themselves, in this case Ayaz, make sense of their lives. Um, I deliberately did not choose a particularly violent vignette for this. Um, read any of those books and you'll be, find plenty of examples where an overzealous pursuit of clarity breaks down into violence. To me, anyway, this, this trajectory of overclarification, insisting on clarity where it doesn't fit the real life and, and the real experience, um, that we, we, I don't think we need further evidence for that process. Rather, I chose a vignette that helps to illustrate, with a little more nuance, the role of alienation yeah, and its opposite ambiguity tolerance. This space, somewhere here. Because that is, I think, um, the main theoretical advance over previous work. And it also gives me the opportunity to talk about a little more inspiring and hopeful example, which is often lacking in, in research on violence. So I ask. Like many young men in Lucknow, Ayaz dreams big time. But other than most, he started to live his dream. I first met him, curiously enough, for a waltz at the border of the old city of Lucknow, where he runs Roxford Academy, Lucknow's most uh, successful at this stage contemporary dance crew, just opposite Islamia College. Born to a middle-ranking railway official and a pious, prudent mother, he spends his childhood wherever his dad was posted, but then returned to Lucknow for higher study. He's one of the few people who did not compartmentalize Lucknow into all the new, cultured and newly rich, Muslim and Hindu, Shia and Sunni, clear-cut categories. For instance, he sees Ambedkar Park, which is heart of the new Lucknow, icon of Mayawati's political success, as simply the logical conclusion of the old Nawabi flair, as he puts it, quote, say, I go there and sit, at times I sit there for one or two hours, I plug my earphones in, I hang in daydreams, I plan the future, I make calls, it feels like I'm at home, surrounded by a diversity of people, couples, husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, from all kinds of backgrounds, good ones and bad ones, 
There, my loneliness disappears, and after some time I'm able to return to my studio more satisfied, all tension resolved. As anyone familiar with Lucknow would tell you, Ambedkar Park is also the place where young couples meet, and Ayaz himself is an attractive man. When I asked him about his friends, he immediately shot back, do you mean male friends or girlfriends? See, he says, in your neighborhood, for instance, nothing would happen. Old Lucknow is a typical Muslim area. Women and girls there live very much in Parda. So if you're looking for a girlfriend or an affair, then you will have to escape from there and go to Hazrat Ganj, to the malls, or to Gomtinagar, or to Ambedkar Park. There you can see a lot, even things that should not happen in India, including illegal things, extraordinary things. But you'll also find genuine boyfriends and girlfriends like you see them in movies. In short, you will find life there. Now, even though a certain moral judgment briefly shoots through here, and the emphasis on escape or even escapism is not accidental, Ayaz does not specify what exactly he experiences in New Lucknow. He does not box the extraordinary in ordinary and orderly terms, because for him life takes precedence. He brings the same approach to his academy. The dance studio is, of course, a great space of romantic possibility, especially if situated at the border of the old city in an area that otherwise lacks opportunities to grow closer. Consequently, Ayaz spends most of his time navigating difficult moral boundaries, keeping the space open enough for romance to happen, but closed enough so that the parents are kind of held at a distance. Yet he performs this boundary work without moral judgment, he refuses to clearly spell out his policy even when I press him hard. So I don't know how often I asked him to spell out where he sees the boundaries and he just flat out refuses to say. He might give me an example and another example and they don't make sense, they don't add up to a policy. Which is kind of the point. The last time I saw him, for instance, just a few months ago, he was interviewing candidates for his front desk. His previous secretary, who had been with him for almost from the beginning, was leaving to take up higher study, and Ayaz finds the whole situation rather stressful, tensionful, tension is what, how he calls it, because he wants to make sure he employs someone suitable to the central role. As I walked into his office, he just started to interview a woman in her 30s who had almost a decade experience in kind of as a government teacher, but wants to change track. Her husband sat disinterested and silently in the background, she was nervously fumbling at her job. At first, Ayaz made an effort to ascertain whether she knew that she would now be working for business rather than for the government, so she would have to work 24-7, be proactive in recruiting new people for his academy, keep lines of communication open, all kind of straight from a, from a management handbook, um, these questions. So far, so unremarkable. But the real issue for Ayaz was whether she could handle the relationship complications of running a place like Roxford, being friendly to students but not overly so, keeping a professional distance while supporting what for many is a transformative journey of adolescence. That includes whether she could, could keep the fine line of romantic relationships among students in the back of her mind as well, while of course abstaining from romance herself. So this wasn't quite spelled out on that occasion given that her husband was there. Now, to ascertain how she would handle the, these more delicate aspects of the, of the job, Ayaz made a few mock calls to her mobile. He was not interested in the substance of her response, nor in her ability to spell out a clear policy, 
but he observed very closely how she would react and how she would respond. To cut a long story short, in the end she failed that test. When I asked him a couple of hours later why he would not hire her, Ayaz drew my attention to one particular moment in the interview where she asked him a question. And it was a question of policy. She asked, will it be okay to continue wearing the hijab? Yes, of course, he said. It suits you very well, and I have no objections, as long as you don't judge others on their appearance and dress choices, especially during training. I won't judge yours. But in the end, he did not want someone who cares about rules. He wanted someone who could relate to the experience happening at Rockford, so she did not get the job. Our conversations about religion follow a similar pattern. Before we sat down for our first interview about faith, one of many, he urged me to explore the nightlife of the neighborhood first. And he justified this by saying, let's eat first. You have to feel the atmosphere before you can grasp how I live. Life first, understanding and explanation later. Let the moment stand on its own, take the time that it takes to really live it before you start to make sense of it. When we returned to his room full with kebabs and the smells of old Lucknow, Ayaz elaborates and told me what it means to sin. And I quote, See, only those men and women who are modest can be called Muslim, because the sense of modesty makes or breaks half one's faith. Being immodest is a dirty thing. If one becomes unashamed, then one's heart and mind have both become impure. So the very first element of becoming a Muslim is that you should be faithful, there should be modesty, there should be honor, you should listen to your parents and fear God. So far, so unsurprising. But most importantly, before you sin or do any kind of bad work, you should make sure to hesitate for a moment. Fear of God means that the humanity of those Muslims who sin without hesitation cannot become complete, which means they cannot truly be Muslims. Now here we see ambiguity, neither nor, as a mode of pious life. Yes, Ayaz lectures about morality, about fear of God, about being modest, etc., etc. But all of this leads him to emphasize a basic attitude of hesitation. True humanity, and hence Islam, does not show in a life without sin, but in a life that hesitates before judging one's sins. Key to him is to pause, to tolerate, to endure the lack of clarity, the categorical and moral openness inherent in unevaluated ambiguity, secondary to that also hesitation in order to reflect and clarify. Now this hesitation before the sin, or more specifically, the reluctance to evaluate one's life purely in terms of good and bad deeds in the first place becomes the true meaning of modesty for him. And that's quite in contrast to the kind of checklist morality advertised by most clerics in Lucknow. And anywhere, really. That does not mean that Ayaz would not categorize or judge, but his life is more than that. Continue to quote from the interview with him. The point is, if I dance, Raphael, then this is forbidden in Islam. So why do I do it nonetheless? See, I think about it that way. If I dance today, if I became a dancer, then beca because it comes out of my body, which means that in some way or another, God has created me this way. God has equipped my body with such energy, planted such an urge inside me and such a stubbornness to go my way, that it became my destiny. But how can it be wrong then? If I actively, consciously, clearly do something wrong, all right, 
or if I lose my modesty, do not hesitate before I act, all right, then you can call me a sinner. But this is not what I am doing, even though society, the glance of others, might say it's wrong. But I am not a thief, I do not deceive people. I earned my bread in legitimate ways and made a name for myself. If my work were nonetheless sinful, then I can only say, O God, I ask you, bend my trajectory so that I leave this path on which you have put me as it is forbidden according to your rules. So for Ayah's moral evaluation, be it his own or in the eyes of others, is secondary to embodied experience. Sin, in the real sense of the word, can only mean a lack of hesitation, an overly quick alienation from the primary ambiguous experience. Sinning means overstretching the quest for clarity, being overly sure of yourself, as being clear about everything you do the moment you do it. Even if his dance should one day turn out to be sin, and he uses the subjunctive here, grammatically speaking, the consequence would not be to leave his life behind and flee into clarity, and then probably not find clarity and break down into ambivalence and violence, etc. The consequence would be to plead with God to enable a different kind of experience. Formulating clear moral categories and judgments in order to overcome the existential ambiguity of his embodied experience is for Ayaz not an acceptable Islamic option. He is called to accept himself as the dancer that he is. He is called to live his life. Judging him is God's task, not his. And he faithfully submits to God's abundant grace, Bismillah rahman rahim life enabled by the ever-merciful, ever-compassionate. Now let me step back from this vignette again and sum up. Following Sigmund Baumann, I propose to understand modern violence as the outcome of an overzealous pursuit of clarity, moral and categorical clarity, which alienates us from the ambiguity of lived experience. At some point, alienation becomes so gross and the aspiration for clarity so untenable that it breaks down into ambivalence and further into violence. Said to me, ambivalence is a relation of either or. Ambivalent phenomena are those that are either good or bad, or rather they are simultaneously good and bad. Ambivalent phenomena are thus clear, though in two contradictory ways. In their clarity, they form a continuum with univalence and multivalence, concepts denoting phenomena that are clear in one way or in multiple ways. Ambiguity, in contrast, is something entirely else. It's a relation of neither nor. Ambiguous phenomena are neither good nor bad. They sit in between, ill-defined and poorly evaluated. This, I would argue, closely resembles lived experience, which as experience is yet undefined, unevaluated, just lived. Clarification only comes to experience as an afterthought, when additional layers of moral and categorical meaning are attributed to it. This process of clarification, of getting from here to there, is necessary, useful, even inevitable, but if driven too far, that is, if it's not acknowledging and building upon the original ambiguity of experience, clarity breaks down into ambivalence and disengenders violence. I moved on to illustrate this line of thinking by introducing you to Ayaz Sheikh, the founder of the Roxford Academy in Old Lucknow. 
As a dancer, what matters to Ayaz is experience and its embodied expression. Reflection, rationalization, judgment comes later. If he feels tension, he does not seek clarity. He goes to Ambedkar Park to seek a different kind of experience. He doesn't think about sinning, whether it be in terms of romance in his academy or otherwise in his life, as doing bad deeds. Sinning is hesitating before you do bad deeds. Not hesitating, sorry, before you do bad deeds. I hope this example of Ayaz demonstrates that this conceptual toolbox is a productive one, that it helps to make better sense of violence and its opposite, ambiguity tolerance, and also that it does resonate with emic terms with attention. The final question to which all of this leads, I think, at least me at the moment, is what you experience when you shut out experience. How does alienation feel like? And I think the answer is tension. That's how alienation feels like in the sense that the term is used in India today. As I said earlier, Sneha and Nanini Gupta have recently written in a beautifully short article on tension that, quote, tension and its embodied and psychological presentations are evidently part of a discourse to make sense <coughs> of problems, crises, conflicts, and trauma in contemporary social and economic life. Tension is part of a process of clarification. Yet its deployment shows the extent to which the consequences of systemic problems are understood as a personal issue of self-care and self-management. Now, I completely agree, but I hope to get one step further by showing that the self which manages itself here, or fails to manage and then breaks down into ambivalence and further into violence, is an alienated self, as it inevitably has to be if one makes oneself the object of one's action, classification and judgments. Nasnea and Nardini argue that specific neoliberal politics make tension seem an individual's problem. I would add the individual in question here is not quite him or herself. The mechanism through which neoliberal politics, or as I would put it, modernity at large, operates is alienation. Given the omnipresence of tension, then, is there still a place for the kind of postmodern utopia that Sigmund Bauman laid out? for an age that learns to come to grips with ambiguity. I must say, Ayaz gives me hope, though much of my other work, certainly in Gujarat, gives me doubt, which is perhaps an appropriately ambivalent conclusion to this talk. Thank you for listening. I'm curious to hear whether any of that resonates with you. <laughs>